Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. If Jack Higgins' goal review was wrong, then I don't want to be right. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I'm Emma Race. I'm Lucy Race. I'm Nicole Hayes. I'm Alicia Sometimes. And I'm Kate Sear. Well, it's very nice to be back for another week. The AFLM season is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> I think it was Jeff Kennett who said to me like two weeks ago, we can't make finals. And all of a sudden, the ladder is wide open. And you know who I would be wrapped to be is a North Melbourne fan. Mm, they must yes. be up and about. Yes. Percentage Although they are good. not in the eight. Um, no, they're 10th. They're, they're just out. They're, they're on but their it's way. All it, numbers, it's funny it? that you say it's <clears throat> wide open because I actually think it's really super crowded. That ladder is just, there's congestion. Like we're worrying about congestion <laughs> in the wrong to- place, I think. So there's... Um, four like a teams, nose. four teams are on <laughs> exactly Alicia. Um, four teams are on forty-four points. Melbourne, Hawthorne, Geelong, and Sydney just outside the eight. North and Essendon could join that logjam this weekend. Wow. It's all about the percentage, isn't it? So when I say wide open and you say it's actually jammed <laughs> shut. Well, my son once said to me, Mum, there are some people who are optimists and there are other people who are realists. Uh, <laughs> I'm with him. I love it. That sounds right. <laughs> if you're Barrack for Collingwood, you'd be a bit nervous. I mean, you yes. could go either way with all the injuries mm. and everything. Perhaps they do go lower on the ladder or they can still rise as they've been doing all year and play well. But it's it, everyone's sort of biting at their mm. heels. Well, and you... they, that, sorry, I was going to say, and they play Sydney this weekend. Yeah, so that's, that's going to be one. a huge game. Sydney's really shocked me. Yeah. It's really shocked me. Doing yeah. topsy-turvy stuff. Yeah, it really is. But and does anyone think that Richmond won't be there on the last day? No. I think they will, but is it possible that the Tigers of 2018 are the Cats of 2008? Oh. Seemingly unbeatable until the big dance when some young upstarts, (laughs) some upstarts come along with nothing to lose and nobody backing them and takes the game by the chair. Oh, yeah, it could be. Who would the upstarts be, do you think, Nick? That's who, the, well, that's my question. Do you have a sense of who would be most likely to beat well, Richmond? If maybe they... GWS. I, I, maybe that youngish team that's no, that people have kind of given up on. I don't know. West Coast? Just a thought. West maybe? Coast? West Coast, maybe. Do you think they're better this year or last year? Because I think they're the better Tigers, this year. Yeah. They are better this year, which is the most dangerous thing you can be in a grand final. Let the me thing just with say the that. Tigers is you need like an eight goal at least lead going into the last quarter because their last quarters are unbelievable. Mm. But, you know, 
how good was it to see Carlton get a win? Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to sound patronising about that because I don't, I don't mean well, it. But, but you it's just like, did. I did. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm apologising for that. But no, I just think it's, it's really nice to see them get a win. And seeing Cripps re-sign too, that's good. That's really good for the club and good Signs for the supporters. Good. Yeah. Mm. Do you know what every team's got to do if you're playing Richmond? You've got to do what uh, Geelong Zach Tui did against the Brisbane Lions. Everyone's called him Zachwood Tui. <laughs> Um, he jumps up and down backwards. So when someone's going for goal, instead of facing them and jumping up and down and waving hands, he says, that's useless. And his quote, I've got a theory that when you're standing the mark, jumping up and down and waving your hands doesn't put anybody off. The only hope is you've got to either make them laugh or make them think, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> Brilliant. Isn't that a great strategy? awesome. I don't think there's enough of that in this game. A bit of trickery. Like we did see Patrick Dangerfield do it when he nominated for the ruck contest and then didn't go up for mm. it and got held out of the, you know, whatever. Like there's a bit of trickery in it and I don't mind it. It feels like there's some wiggle room. It's the old yeah. chewy on your boot thing. A bit of that. But mm. that's what I thought when I saw the Jack Higgins goal. I was like, mm. hang on a minute. Is this oh. real? Circus skills. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I was talking to Limo and he was like, are we going to recruit people from parkour? Like people who can yeah. run up the goalpost and do a flip and then kick the ball. I'm like, you and I love Australian Ninja Warrior. I'm yeah, and a, a little bit of Quidditch maybe, a bit of Quidditch action. I can yeah. see that making a real I just impact. think, you know, when we've been talking about cross-coders, no one's talked about the um, infiltration of magicians into the, gra- yeah. into the game. Oh. But can I ask, what's the rule if, the, if, like you say, you do a bit of parkour, if the um, player touches the pole, not the ball, but the play- is a player allowed to touch the yeah. ball, yeah. lean back? Yeah, it's only can about I, the ball. Can I say, you're looking at me, Alicia, sometimes like I might know the rules off by heart. I went to have a look at the rules of the game <laughs> this morning no. and it's harder to find than a high court decision to be to be sure that I've got the right rule and so on. So I didn't look up that one. But are we going to talk about the Jack Higgins goal? Do Let's we want to? Yeah. Let's take a listen to how the ABC Grandstand team called it because... It was just too good. Spoiled by Scharenberg. It bounces. No. Oh, you don't believe it. Higgins kept no. alive on the behind post and then snapped it over his head. Is that goal of the year? It has to be a throw. Well, the umpire didn't see this right. So with his left arm around the post, he throws That's it up a the goal. and then flicks it with his right boot. Woo. If they haven't called a throw, it should be a goal. It's a goal. And a super goal. This will go down as one of the miraculous... Goals we've ever seen. All clear. Goal. Who has a thought process like that, Rammer? <laughs> and Jack Higgins, a man who said he just likes kicking snags, has created a goal at the MCG. Woo. How good is it hearing 88,500 people yes. in three waves? The first wave is the people cheering who saw it and couldn't mm. believe what they saw. Then everyone would have looked to the screen, seen the replay, and then waiting for the goal review, and then all yeah. of a sudden oh. it comes back again. I don't know if you've seen it, but Michael Wilson took an absolute cracking photo of that goal. And in the background, you have the crowd, and you can see that they're in those three states of, yes. <laughs> of um, disbelief. disbelief. What the hell is he doing? Yeah, yeah that's, that's what you need. It's beautiful. But yeah, there has been a lot of debate about whether or not it was a goal. So, um, I actually was reading all these articles over the last few days about people debating whether or not it was a goal, and no one was actually explaining what the rule actually says. So, I did have a look at the rule, and it's actually very clear. The rule says that a throw shall be given its ordinary meaning. <laughs> What's that's that mean? That's actually the definition. Oh, Case closed, Your Honour. <laughs> so, but Take the, that one. So it should be given its ordinary meaning, 
but also includes the act of propelling the football with one or both hands in a scooping motion. So uh, there we there we go. It was just I a creative case. <laughs> but it makes me wonder, you could act we could, might actually see someone shimmy up the point post or shimmy up a goal mm. post to try and get you know, do you remember seeing those netballers yes. <laughs> where someone stu- stood, they on, stood on someone's back? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was interesting because overnight we posted a video, one of those videos that we did where we did some acting. <laughs> <laughs> one of our videos went up, which is about um, the rules of the game and trying to explain them to overseas um, viewers or fans of the game. And a friend of mine lives in the States and she posted underneath the video, this is what happened to her yesterday. Now we're going to call the person that she was converted with USA. Okay. okay. So USA says to her, what are you watching on loop? She says, the Jack Higgins goal. USA says, is that how you score a goal in AFL? <laughs> she says, um. <laughs> <laughs> We've so, had some good uh, responses to that, actually. It's yeah. so soccer, so round ball, isn't it? We did. Yeah. Without we, the hand thing, though, technically you definitely can't throw with a soccer. No, no hands. We That's had right. a response to um, our funny little hacking video from the <laughs> Se- <laughs> Seattle Grizzlies Australian Rules Football Club, and they said they overheard this on the sideline in Seattle. All these men run around bashing into each other for two hours. Then they shake hands and sing vaudeville songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sums it up. True. 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 Nice so we are talking about cross-coders a second ago. Kate, have you got any cross-coder news? Yeah, I saw some stories over the last few days about a couple of women who are extremely accomplished athletes in their chosen sports who have hinted that they might be interested in coming to AFLW if an opportunity arises. So the first one is Sharni Layton, who many people will know is an extraordinarily um, talented Australian netballer, last week announced her uh, retirement, but said, I'll leave the do- I might leave the door open for AFLW if there's a chance. And the other one, which I must admit floored me, was Sally Pearson, the the Mine. Olympic gold medal hurdlist who, who has also expressed she a potential interest. Oh Remember so, when Buddy was running down and he yes, hurdled, hurdled goal of the year? And then goal, yeah. I think he won goal of the year. Mm-hmm. Imagine he did. Sally Pearson could hurdle like five people stacked on top of each other. <laughs> that netball pyramid yeah, that Lucy was just So you could build a wall to try and keep them out of the goal square, but she'd just Sally go over it. Wow. What's the yeah. ballpark of her age? Uh, Sally Pearson. Mm. That's a good question, actually. Yeah. Just let me get on that page. Oh, I'm thinking pole vaulters could do well too with this mm. whole new acrobatic style of kicking, of goal kicking. Pole That's vault. a good point. You know they can do that flip over. I mean, you need the pole, granted. <laughs> or a high jumper. Sally yep. Pearson's 31. All oh, right. Oh, so okay. there you go. So plenty of time. Age. Plenty of time. <laughs> and she's five foot six inches, so she's oh. quite teeny tiny. Ruck. She be <laughs> small ruck. Um, so what was interesting is that there was a lot of chat about rules of the game, which is kind of why we posted our hacking video. I love that word, Lucy. By the way, um, but it's in an amazing kind of turnaround for the books. I felt that this week we achieved equality, Lucy. <laughs> I think we may have. Um, this was a, an article that was in the um, Ballarat Courier and it was in response to some um, criticism that Wayne Carey had levelled at the game that was played in Ballarat on the weekend. And the journalist writing this piece conceded, and I'm quoting here, that the big screen wasn't working as it should. The lights weren't strong enough towards the end of the match and the weather was abysmal. And I thought that reminds me of something. (laughs) Same, same. Same, same. And also the tweaking of the rules on the the run. Mm. Yeah. How do we feel about that? 
Yeah, so by treating them just as badly as they've treated women, that makes equality. Hmm. Exactly. Yeah. They are actually going to change. Some of the rules are going to be rolled out this week in the Coburg Werribee match. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't know how those people feel well, about that. Well, we keep being told that the teams are all about it, but then um, quickly the uh, official lines come out that they're not so much. But they, they're trialling two rules, um, the 666 rule, which we've talked about a lot, um, and it means that, Free kicks will be paid against players not in starting positions at the centre bounce based on that six, you know, so six in the centre or six around the, the centre and on either end of inside the arc. It still six, sounds like the six devil. Six the number of the devil? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, bad PR. But then Good under the, the trial, bad omen <laughs> the team that has a player outside of their starting position will be penalised with a free kick in the event that a player from each team is outside the required position, <laughs> then the player deemed to be the furthest, actually farthest, away will be <laughs> penalised. What if they all that. keep moving? I know. Right? I, I actually think that what they need now <laughs> is somebody that sits on the PA at the stadium and calls out, statues, because <laughs> yes. they're going to have to measure a cutoff point yeah, and work it out. And they're so they're going to need to go to the local hardware store and mm. get one of those laser measuring devices. Yes. And everyone's going to have to stand still while they work it out. But, but they, they, they can't do that because the whole love and passion and the reason <laughs> the whole the, are you reason apply logic? is a movement in I know, AFL. I that's, love the it. that's the only reason. <laughs> 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 but this is effectively like trying to add in the offside rule, like a, a version is, of offside. And the whole thing that we love about this game, is, as Alicia said, is the fact that there isn't one. I liked your comment that it's turning into NFL and the games are going to go for four and a half years and then because <laughs> we'll just be minutes. waiting, yeah. waiting we'll be for things, flags. special no. teams. We're going to have no rules, regulations. Yeah, no, no, no it's okay. disappointing, isn't it? Okay, are we ready to roll up our sleeves and melee, ladies? Sure, let's, let's do, do it. it. Um, Alicia, this week, Daisy Pierce. Oh, I love Daisy Pierce on the boundary when she's there. She's amazing. And uh, you know how cold it was with Port Adelaide and Western Bulldogs Ballarat. I think someone mentioned minus four. I haven't fact-checked oh. that. It was just so freezing. You could see lips turning blue. You they're could wearing see double jumpers. Goosebumps. You, they're wearing double jumpers. But, of course, uh, Daisy was missing at times. And Brian Taylor, yeah. it says here <laughs> from uh, you know uh, a news article, he put a blowtorch on Channel 7 colleague Daisy Pierce after the AFLW star abandoned her post. The cult hero broadcaster called out Pierce. Do you love the way they've given him that little I moniker? Say, Who's the cult hero? Like, yeah, there Daisy's in our cult hero. <laughs> um, and he really gave her a thumping saying no one has ever abandoned their post. And it's got in this article, the man known as Dipper told Seven it was a weak <laughs> effort from the Seven uh, duo because also uh, there was other people, Soderstrom, that's right. He sort of, you see him rugged up under umbrellas. Mm. So somehow this <clears throat> thing that you're weak if you're mm. absolutely freezing, getting rained on, is somehow a sign of weakness and not your hardcoreness. I just don't get it. But she got a lot of flack for that. And she it did do some great interviews, but she was missing for a little bit. I'd be warm too. I'd be there with my thermos and cup of tea. But they're saying, you know, uh, BT was saying, well, she could have done better. It's hard for him to say that from the commentary box. Yeah, really. I have have heard um, Tim Watson say that he has left his post mm, as a boundary rider before. But I, I actually think this is a perfect opportunity for Daisy to issue a challenge to BT. Mm. So you remember that Daisy played a game in Darwin last year mm. 
37 degrees and brutal humidity. I actually think that it's quite simple. She just needs to say, if we want to, you know, you want to test where we're both at physically, how about you come and play a game in Darwin in Mm. February with me? Mm. Yeah. And can I just say too, the other challenge that she could issue him with is that because he's so um, keen on roaming with roaming, (laughs) roaming Brian, why doesn't he roam down on the boundary next Mm. time it's minus Mm. four and... We'll see how he feels about oh, that. I thought the blowtorch that he put on her might have warmed her. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Oh, that's where I thought it was heading. Yeah. kind of toasty. Uh, I think it was just all a bit of banter, to be it honest. Was. And Daisy can definitely dish it back. Oh. She will come back with some of the best. I think she's extraordinary. She's, I think she's I just think she's the most she, amazing superstar. Mm. She's a game. great addition and just so, so great on the fly. And a superstar yeah. in BT. Yeah, watch your, watch your game, mate. Yeah, totally. Careful. Um, Nicole, if um, you've been closely watching the <laughs> rules of the game because you were going, you wrote an article last week, but what rules of the game should we have been looking at, do you think? Well, so um, just we, the, the ones, we don't even know what these six recommendations are at the moment. There's still, we know a couple of them, but we don't know what all of them are that are going to go to the executive. But, you know, so we do know the 666 rule, which we've already talked about, and they didn't recommend any changes to the interchange rotation. Um, they did propose restrictions to how runners are used and the possibility of an extended goal, expanded goal square for kick-ins, which they're also trialling at that VFL match. Um, but I think... You know, I, as I wrote in the article, um, a bigger issue is that all these recommendations under consideration are designed to shape the aesthetic of the game. Um, and the glaring omission in the competition committee's remit to date is player welfare and safety. Um, and in a season that's already seen what 50 plus players suffer concussion or concussion like symptoms, you know, we know Kobe Stevens retired early, um, Harris Andrews had, uh, you know, a concussion and a brain a brain bleed. It's very hard to say. I just feel like the committee's priorities might be better served focusing on, I don't know, reducing high hits and illegal tackles rather than how many goals are kicked. Um, but a couple of the things that, you know, seem to be a lot of conversation around um, in medical circles is is simply just expanding that have like a minimum two or three or four. I mean, the, the you know, they need to do more research, but a minimum fortnight break mm-hmm. from concussion. So not just for any head injury, right? not just not being able to return that day, but also having a, a gap before you can return to the lineup of your team. Um, AR, I think the rugby union does uh, 14 days as a, um, a, I think everything but the professional level, but, you know, I think it could be expanded. And the other thing that came in um, to question a little bit was this notion of club doctors mm. and that they're doing the assessment and how there is significant conflict there in that there might be pressures if it's a 50-50 for one for the player to, to be, be assessed inaccurately. And we've, as we heard from Kobe Stevens, players sometimes fudge their responses and, and, and are good at reading um, and covering their symptoms. But also in terms of after the game, Perhaps there needs to be independent doctors making that medical, giving medical approval rather than ones associated with a club where there is that extra pressure um, to perhaps lean towards returning a player sooner than they're ready. Um, I, ARU does do that. The rugby union does not have the, the – the, they actually have a blue card system. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. So a, a ref, if there's an injury or a head high hit – 
they call they have a blue card to say this player must like the blood rule must be removed while they're assessed and they're assessed by ARU doctors not by club doctors and I think there's something you know Mm. I don't know about whether the removal whether that's an umpire's call or what but I do like the idea of having independent medical assessment on the game and also perhaps prior to returning so that's one of them. Sounds sensible. Just just on that, um, Britt Benich, she wrote a piece in Players Voice this week that um, again talked about the battle she's had with um, coming back from concussion and post-concussion syndrome. And it's really worth having a read mm. because it, it really does just shed more light on what a, a challenging um, condition it is and challenging injury it is to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, so, I I mean, I think there's a whole lot of stuff they could have talked about, um, but I do think that having player welfare central to the rules, if they are going to be messing with the game, probably should be the priority. I also think they need to get rid of the lasso rule inside 50 for the AFLW. (laughs) Well, no, I I (laughs) disagree. Inside 50? As I've said before, I'm happy to keep it as long as it's accompanied by music. Like Uh, a scooting. Fair call. Boots scooting, baby. Driving <laughs> me crazy. Um, something that was no doubt driving you crazy, Dr. Kate's here. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say two words to you. <laughs> Cricket Australia. <sighs> Go. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that would be fair enough. Like most people, I had a very strong reaction to this story this week. So just as a quick recap, we we heard earlier in the week that um, a Tasmanian woman by the name of Angela Williamson uh, had been sacked by Cricket Australia and she's she is taking legal action against them. And apparently the reason she was sacked is that from her personal Twitter account, she had sent out a few tweets which were critical of the Tasmanian government um, particularly the fact that um, essentially there is no public provider or there is no longer actually any service that provides women who require pregnancy terminations in ta- Tasmania um, with that service. And um, so she had sent out a few tweets critical of the Tasmanian government. She had been calling on them to do something about it and lobbying. And then she says that Cricket Australia sacked her for those political views Um it then transpired, or it's, it's since come out that she herself, and she publicly stated this, had uh, terminated a pregnancy at a certain point in time and that she had had to travel to Victoria in order to do so. And she alleges that, um, in fact, someone from the government told Cricket Australia about that private medical information, which, if true, is just flabbergasting. <laughs> is that a word? No, totally. I'm flabbergasted. That's a polite way to swear. Mm. Yeah. I what's said some... the sorry? What's no. the legal ramifications if that has happened? If if medical records have been shared like that? Well, look, I, I haven't looked into it to be honest. I haven't sort of spent some time looking at it, but I think it's um, clearly going to be problematic if her records were accessed for an improper purpose and then and then shared. I think from what I've seen, the government denies having done anything like that. So I'm a bit cautious on several mm. aspects mm. of the case because we've heard just her version of events so far, and while I don't doubt what she says to be true. I just, um, I'm a little bit cautious because it's now going to be the subject of legal proceedings and I guess we'll find out um, exactly what happened in the wash. Um, But a couple of people did tweet us as soon as this story was announced and we're very interested in hearing our views and um, what we had to say about it and a couple of people um, were interested in what I might have to say about it too. So I don't know why, but anyway. (laughs) Um, But look, I just wanted to say, I didn't want to say too much actually, mainly because, um, as I mentioned earlier, 
it is now going to be subject to legal proceedings. And so I'm very interested to see how it transpired, but or what exactly transpired. But one of the things that she alleges is that, um, or one of the things that we've seen written about this week is that perhaps it was Cricket Australia's social media policy that they relied on here, that they have a, a social media policy that sort of essentially says that their employees can't tweet critical or political information or that they have to take care on social media. And so I wanted just to say that to sort of broaden the discussion out that this isn't the first time that something like this has happened in this country where an employee has been sacked for tweeting. Mm. Um, And so as an example, there was a woman called Michaela Banieri. I hope I've pronounced her surname correctly. Um, And she worked for the Department of Immigration and Citizenship at the Commonwealth level. And in 2013, she was sacked for something kind of similar. Um, But there are some interesting differences here. She had posted a series of tweets from what was actually a private and anonymous account. And she had criticised the government's refugee policy. And I think a a colleague of hers tipped the government off and said, look, I actually think this is her tweeting anonymously from this account. An investigation ensued and she did lose her job. Now, in that instance, the government said that she had breached the code of conduct that exists for Australian public servants. And that policy requires public servants um, to, and I'll quote here, uphold the good reputation of the Australian public service. So that's a pretty broad Mm. um, definition, really, or a broad expectation or obligation. So she... That happened in 2013 and there is still ongoing litigation in relation to that case. And and I mention it because it is a very big and important case and it's going to become more significant Um, because in April this year she won a compensation case against the government. Um, she, she went to a tribunal and the tribunal found that that social media policy or that, sorry, that code of conduct policy that the Australian Public Service had, had breached what's called the implied right to political communication, which is kind of like the Australian version of the right to free speech that Americans have in their constitution, although here in Australia it's a very different kind of right and a much more limited sort of right. Um, But that's what the tribunal found. And so just the other day, actually, the Commonwealth Attorney-General announced that he is taking this case to the High Court. And so I mention it because the stakes are really high and they should be of interest to all of us because that case might test how this freedom of... uh, political communication, as it's called, works in this country, not just for public servants, but actually for private sector Mm. employees Mm. more generally. So all of us really who are employed in any capacity could be affected by this case. And, And one of the things that I think the High Court will look at is how social media policies Um, should be considered from a legal perspective. Are they legal or illegal? Um, And so, as I said, that applies to all of us. Well, that is a case that's going to be relevant to all of us. So I really um, think, you know, if you you don't know about it, watch out for it because that decision will come out in in due course. But um, it just also, it's interesting to me because most major sporting organisations do have social media policies of this kind and are very concerned to protect their brand and to um, 
you know, ensure that employees don't either criticise the, the governing body or criticise the code or criticise their sponsors and all of the things, all of the stakeholders, for want of a better word, that are um, invested in those sports are potentially ones that the sporting code wants to protect from that political communication. And so um, I'm very, very interested to watch that case which and... and um, Ms Williamson's case as well because as I said she is now taking legal action against Cricket Australia and both of those cases are ones to watch. It's really interesting that you bring up brand, Kate, because I think um, as you say, with it, with something that's before the courts, you know, there's not a lot that we can really talk about in depth. But if we take a step back and actually think of brand and think about Cricket Australia, in their attempts to potentially protect their brand, have they actually done more damage to their brand? Mm. And I think that's Mm. probably, um, in my mind, it has. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the male champions of change. And um, I know this is something that comes up from time to time, but James Sutherland is a male champion of change. And when and, you go, to, and James Sutherland's the CEO, the CEO of Australia, Australia. 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 correct? Yeah. Um, on is that, he still? No, he just no, resigned. He just resigned but he, he would have been is, at but his time. on his way, way out. Yeah. He's oh, on his sorry, way out. Yeah. 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 And so when when you go to that website, it it says that the heart of this program involves, and I'm quoting here, men of power and influence forming a high profile coalition to achieve change on gender equality issues in organisations and communities. And so you can't get away from the fact that in choosing to sack Ms Williamson for these tweets, Cricket Australia have actually taken a political action. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it sits well with the ethos of that particular organisation. And I, and I think it also um, damages their brand in my opinion in terms of gender how they how they're um, actually working for gender equality it's interesting to look at how much social media is influencing um, sport and governance and um, communities because in a lot of ways social media has been able to give a platform to people who haven't had voices previously so what's interesting about that is that and I was listening to this on a great podcast called still processing which is um, two african-american um, culture writers for the New York Times who talk about culture and they were talking about how platform has opened up um, voices and diversity of voices, which is so important. But at the same time as we see what has happened here with Cricket Australia, and obviously we'll keep an eye on that, it reminded me of Israel Folau and um, his freedom of speech um, cry when he wants to talk about his own personal religious beliefs and how to a lot of people that sounds like hate speech and whether or not um, through his sporting organisation, whether they need to support him or whether they need to silence him. And again, what we were talking about a moment ago with concussion, I don't believe that the AFL clubs are that thrilled with how overt a lot of the players are being about what concussion is doing to them and how they're expressing the full impact of that. And But with that, it gives, with having Twitter and those social platforms, Instagram, we've seen it on there too, is it's actually going to force a movement. It's going to force the conversation. So actually diversity of voices, I think we have to take the good with the bad because a diversity of voices is actually 
what we've always been. It's mm. just shining a light on it now. And at no time did that feel more relevant to me last was than last week when we saw that Fairfax had been purchased by Channel 9. And I was mm. thinking, obviously, um, I'm a huge advocate of diverse voices. I've worked in community broadcasting along with Alicia for most of my life. And now as a podcaster, I still believe that I... I'm kind of adhering to those same um, general ethos and and I do really appreciate having a diverse um, voice in my news stream and my feed. But um, last week, obviously, Fairfax was bought by Nine and also no small news. Croc Media, who is Craig Hutchison's sport media company, purchased the footy record, which mm. is actually a pretty big purchase. Now, um, it got me thinking about platform, especially in light of listening to Still Processing, which I would... Um, highly recommend anyone listen to. We often lament that the pale, male and stale um, is what we see in broadcasting teams. But of course, that's just the presenters. It's The bigger picture is those people who own the platform and actually dictate the direction of media outlets. So I was thinking about this. You'll remember that recently Eddie Maguire um, over, took the role back from Craig Hutchison as the host of The Footy Show. And we can make jokes about Eddie everywhere, but what's really interesting is that where Eddie is potentially everywhere, he's the host of other people shows on other people's platforms, whereas you look at Craig Hutchison and he is snapping up, and that is a crocodile joke for Croc Media, <laughs> he's snapping up football media everywhere there's an opportunity. And it made me think about how actually in the States, if I look to Jay-Z or you might know him as Sean Carter or as I refer to him, Mr Beyonce Knowles, he created <laughs> Tidal, which is his own platform um, for music streaming so that him and um, the artists that he had signed and their friends and colleagues don't have to lose any of their money to other people's um, platforms to have to pay for the streaming. They kind of retain all their rights. So and... you're saying buying, a co- we're going to buy a company. I'm thinking about <laughs> it. Who's in? Yeah, right. So, right? Sure. But then it made me think, because I listened to the Billie Jean King interview that um, that Kate had suggested, which was quite brilliant. I was thinking about this a lot, how important it is and how platform is so important to the independent voice. And similarly, Billie Jean King, of course, set up the Virginia Slims um, tennis circuit, which she grabbed eight of her other tennis playing mates. And they they pulled away from the what was being offered to them because it wasn't good enough. So they set up their own shop and that became, in effect, the WTA tour and they got to work for conditions and pay that they believed were really important. So how does that all kind of impact me in talking about football? I guess where I get with that is I go, I'm more and more I feel that voices need to advocate for the women's game and more and more I think that there is going to be a time when the men's game is going to have to give up things for the women's game to be able to blossom and to expand. And I am really concerned that the AFLPA isn't going to be able to do that, for, to advocate for women that hard when they also have to advocate for the men. And it's not a man versus woman thing. It's an AFLM versus AFLW fixturing issue and commercial sponsorship issue. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw at some point that there would be an alternative for the women to be um, to have advocacy um, through some kind of set-up um, players association that's just for the women in mm. this game. Yeah, well, I I have long thought, and I've said to you many times, Em, that I fear that the AFL Players Association, no criticism of them because they're a union and they do their job, but that they have a conflict of interest when it comes to to women because they are 
engaged in um, negotiations over, you know, how to share the pie, essentially. Mm. And they, they can't make... <clears throat> Well, I mean, we can make the pie bigger, but also at the moment, uh, you know, with broadcasting rights and the like. But um, that conflict of interest is a really mm. big concern. It's a really interesting um, topic that you raise because by the end of this season, we should also have an Indigenous Players Association. So I don't know if you saw this. This is a story that was in um, the paper about a month ago. Sean Gorman, who's a friend of ours, um, and we spoke to him in season one, oversaw a report on a study where 25 past Indigenous footballers spoke about their experiences within the AFL system um, and really highlighted the positives and also the negatives. So the study covered a really broad period from one player who'd retired in kind of 19, about 1996 up to more recent players um, and it was the study was done on behalf of the Indigenous Past Players Group which is led by Des Headland and includes people like Michael O'Loughlin and Gavin Wanganeen. This report was just recently given to Gillan McLaughlin and the group has a number of goals one of which is to have an Indigenous Players Association up and running by the end of this season. Um, the other thing, some of the other goals are to increase Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders post-playing opportunities. So, and that's to include coaching at board and administration level, but also in the media. Um, one of the other things that they're calling for is for all clubs to have an Indigenous liaison officer. Now, the article quotes um, one player who gave feedback that essentially according to this one player, essentially many Indigenous players end up hating the AFL. He said that issues arise because the mainstream, and here I quote, he says, no jack shit about managing us or applying and fitting into our ways of life. The AFL are still walking the other way when we ask you to walk with us. And that quote really got me thinking about how true it is that the dominant group always asks the minority to do it their way. And I think, you know, that's what we see, like, say, with an AFL, you know, PA, that's the dominant group. And it's saying, let's, you know, everyone fit in with us. How, like, do we ever see organisations and institutions really listen and then change themselves mm. from the dominant way of mm. thinking? And again, I have to admit, because we're sisters and we listen to all the same stuff, <laughs> I listened to this episode of Still Processing and the episode is called We Can't Burn It All Down, Even Though Sometimes We Want To. And That is so a title. Is, it's such right? a title. <laughs> um, one, the discussion they had was around how we've really come to a time when most cultural institutions are recognising a need for diversity and inclusion but there's few that are really nailing it. And one idea I want to leave you with is this, that diversity and inclusion are not the same thing. I know that, sound, that sounds simple, but, you know, diversity is just a group containing many types of people of various races, ethnicities, genders, sexuality, physical abilities. Inclusion, and here they had a really inter interesting discussion about maybe substituting that word with incorporation because it's more useful. Incorporation means bringing something into the body. So when you include or incorporate, it means you've actually enabled those people that have come into the group to succeed. So you've given them the tools or the access or the voice or the privileges that they require to, uh, to achieve success. And depending on each case, that's going to be a different thing. So it comes back to that whole, um, you know, the, the difference, the nuance between equity and equality. So mm. equality is just when you treat everybody the same, but equity is when you make sure that everybody gets what they need to succeed. It's what actually brings 
everyone along. And I think we should always be looking at things through that framework. And for that reason, I think the idea of having an Indigenous Players Association is brilliant. And I also think the idea of having an AFLW PA is a great idea. Nicole, what's caught your eye on Twitter this week? Thanks for asking it. <laughs> it was just it's just a question that just came to me and I was like, Nicole's been looking at on Twitter. It's her flashcard, isn't it? Dorothy, Dorothy Dixer. Um, yeah. So I saw a tweet on Twitter. Not so <laughs> Oh, you can see a tweet sometimes on Instagram and, uh, or Facebook. That's the end of the segment. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole saw a tweet on Twitter. Send us a text message if you've also seen a tweet on Twitter. <laughs> this one caught my eye for a couple of reasons, but um, and I am going to read it, but I will have to um, bleep out words, so um, it's not um, Can you word go like word. that and we'll go bleep like okay. that? <laughs> Men who talk... Bleep. <laughs> on women's sports should be forced to go one-on-one with a professional female athlete in their respective sport. Women are Bleep. beasts. <laughs> Sorry. What man do you know that would be playing when his body was literally ripping apart on the inside and <laughs> bleeding profusely? None. So that was the what? tweet. Wow. Yeah. Period. Wow. Watch. Yeah, right. <laughs> Pretty powerful stuff. For a second, I got the blood you know, up, and I was thinking, yeah, and then the next minute I was thinking, no, <laughs> this is a little unsettling. So the spirit of the tweet in terms of advocating for women's strength and resilience, you know, I endorse wholeheartedly. But I am troubled by this continued glorification of toughness as demonstrated, and, you know, Alicia, you mentioned it too uh, with Daisy Pierce, but, um, you, you know, all the alternative being weakness, and that this toughness is demonstrated through fighting through or ignoring pain and injury in an effort to either keep playing or, you know, to soldier mm-hmm. on or even just to force an early return to the team. Um, players taking painkillers at the break and playing through injury, we've seen that before, um, potentially risking exacerbation or, or complications of their wound, of their injury. You know, we, we've already mentioned the Kobe Stevens example where he admitted to covering up symptoms of concussion just so he could go back on the ground. And last week I talked about the American oil rig and, and this fear of showing weakness and, you know, in any way showing humanity and how this actually led to men dying, to people dying as a result of being unable to show this weakness or to present <clears throat> toughness. Um, the, you know, obviously that's the extreme end of the spectrum, but with this the increasing participation of women in sport and the profile it's been given and female sport generally, I think we need to guard against the temptation to recruit women and girls into this mindset um, and instead encourage everyone to prioritise player and personal welfare over this notion of competition and winning at all cost. I think that we, you know, I'd like to see us reconnecting with the idea of sport as entertainment and spectacle, um, but still comprising, you know, at least in footy entirely of human beings with very human limitations, and that's physically, psychologically, emotionally, and to remember that they have to go back and live their lives Mm. after match day or at the end of their career. Um, And the AFL um, Indigenous players definitely, you know, is part of that, you know, that they have suffered as a consequence of this, you know, this all-in 
mentality. Um, and as fans, we can be passionate and one-eyed and devoted to our team and winning and still remember that at the end of the day, it's entertainment, that we want everyone to go home safely after each match and return to their post-career lives as intact as possible. Um, morally and ethically, it's important we remember this, but more and more there are sound legal reasons mm. to do this too. Um, and we ha- we haven't seen many post-career lawsuits around injury and long-term health issues in the AFL, but we have seen a few. And if you think about the fallout from the Essendon drug scandal and Paddy Ryder's concerns about his daughter's health um, and various other you know, the Indigenous players' concerns post-career regarding the support, the talk around concussion and post-career problems, you know, it's getting louder, not quieter. And this might sound a bit over-earnest because I tend to be a bit. Um, <laughs> but I just think we need to remember is that we're all in this together, this wild and beautiful game of footy. And as fans, we're part of the equation, part of the tapestry that creates this culture. So can we go back to celebrating the beauty but also somehow keep everyone safe? Mm. The, the other aspect of that, Nick, that troubles me too is this tendency to always pit men against women. Mm. And we, I mean, Em, you mentioned Billie Jean King earlier, who I, I'll, I'm going to say something about um, a bit more in a moment. But um, Nicole and I were talking off air about Billie Jean King this morning and um, and a film that came out a, a few months ago involving her, uh, about her, which is called Battle, Battle of the Sexes. And it's about um, an event, you know, almost 50 years ago now, where she was challenged by a former male number one player to compete in a match against her and to prove that, you know, he wanted to prove that men were better and stronger and fitter and faster and all of that. And um, Nicole was asking me what I thought about that film and and actually I just was left with a feeling of sadness and frustration. Mm. She beats him, so spoiler alert, um, (laughs) but there was nothing about that that was joyful and it was because of this tendency to, or this this sense that, you know, women have to be pitted against and compared to men all the time. And I find that so problematic and unproductive, counterproductive. I saw a lot of discussion along those lines, Nick and Kate, um, with Ellie Carpenter in the Matildas this week. So you will have seen it. She copped a ball Mm -hmm. right in the face. And there was a lot of talk about how she's so much tougher than Neymar and, and those sorts of things. All I could think of was she's just copped a concussion Mm. and, I found it really hard to see past that. But the celebration was around the fact that she was tough. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And, and yeah, yeah, she was. And yes, she but was. But she didn't have yeah. a choice. No. Like she, she looked like she was pretty much almost knocked out. Yeah. Sometimes um, it's the wording though. We mm. get resilience confused with toughness. So sometimes it is actually beautiful resilience that we want to encourage mm. and we call it toughness. And sometimes we are mixing them up that perhaps we should be encouraging resilience and not a certain kind of toughness. I think it's just that's when beautiful, someone... Sorry, that's yeah. a beautiful word to yeah. use instead of. Yep. Come on. Resilient. Be resilient. It up. But I think I, I, I don't have a problem with the word toughness. Mm, um, sure. But it's just it's just when it's associated with injuries. Yeah. And there's a, a kind of a tacit celebration of yes or humour associated with it. it I find it really a, difficult. It's been attached to this game that we love mm. for so long that when you play when you play when you play act the game you want to play act the toughness too because it seems. It's so embedded in the game. Like it's so attached to the game. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. It's a fair, it's a, it's going to be a really hard one mm. to try and draw apart because yeah. they are, they feel very very 
linked forever. But when Thanks. kids do get involved in footy, <laughs> Alicia, kids say the darndest things. They do. <laughs> and this week I spoke to two girls who don't want their names out there, Schmadeline and Schmelly. <laughs> um, it's... Quite funny. Uh, so I've written this down. It's not word for word. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what they couldn't get their heads around because I heard the, these two girls talking at a little party and they were just, to- you know, I thought, hang on, they're talking about some film or some Disney character or something. But no, they were talking about footy and they couldn't get their heads around this. Can I just ask how old they were, roughly? Uh, seven. Beautiful. Right. Yeah. Thanks. So seven-year-olds at a birthday party dressed in tutus, talking about footy, and this is what they said. Okay, the suns are easy to beat because the night comes out and the sun is destroyed in an instant, so that's easy. (laughs) Suns are gone straight away. Yes. The crows are black as night and crows are big, so they would definitely beat a magpie. They're both smart, but let's face face it, crows have an evil eye. Yes, Yes, I'm with this. Crows would lose to hawks. Hawks would lose to an eagle. They have bigger claws. This is a fact, I think. (laughs) (laughs) A dog is going to come along and see these fighting birds and just eat them. So bulldogs would eat the birds. And a swan could possibly be swallowed by a bulldog. But here's the thing. The swans peck badly, so they'll peck the dog. The dog will run off with its tail in the swan's mouth. But a cat, (laughs) but a cat, especially a tabby, is going to annoy the swan as well and basically try and kill it. So bye-bye bird. (laughs) And then bye-bye cat as the bulldog will eat the cat. Oh. And a kangaroo is going to see the dog and jump on its head. <laughs> There's no way a dog will win. But a kangaroo is no match for a tiger. Yes. A tiger mm. is mm. going to chase the kangaroo and catch it. And a lion and a tiger, even though they shouldn't be in the same pen because this is Australia, would just about even each other out and both die fighting. So the lions would win. So there'll be. A, oh, I was going to say, oh, I thought there was going to be wow. a draw. No, well, that's oh. right. That actually that sounds like an science. episode of The Outer Sanctum. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't this know is, why she swallowed a fly. This is a far better version of Omen Watch than I've ever been able to produce. And here's where it gets tricky. Mm. A saint would come along and try and save the lion and tiger and be pretty much annihilated by the demon. The demon is more powerful with his stick thingy. (laughs) And his 666. That's right. And then the power would destroy the demon because she would would overcome. And they (gasps) said she. She's a she. Would overcome and win over all the land. Lightning wins. I've read that book. <laughs> the power. <laughs> but a docker is something that shouldn't should have been destroyed earlier. <laughs> possibly by the lion, the sun, or the bird. And a yes. bomber is going to come and bomb all the animals and gods and powers oh, and fly no. over all the land. But then a giant is going to grab that plane and oh, eat it for breakfast. Giant. But the blues who keep their end up have no place in this world. <laughs> A blues is not a thing, so by default they win everything. Oh, my God. That is actually spectacular. And I'm paraphrasing, but they seriously kept going and going and going. So I'm just there, creepy, writing down everything they were were saying. I I was desperate to know what they were going to say about the blue. The blue. The blues win everything. The blues. Or do they? Yeah. The blue is a state of mind. Exactly. so interesting you should say that because I heard a podcast recently where they were talking about blue and you can be blue skies are positive, but you you can can also have the blues. blues. Mm. Yeah. So it can be either or. 
Nick and I were very lucky to speak with George Megalogenis. He is not only a power in the political world, he's also a power in the football world, and he loves Richmond. So we spoke to him about his book, The Football Solution. This book is much more than a history of football, although yeah. it does have such rich and meaty stuff to, stuff to dig into. You see football and, you know, you extend that to a couple of the other codes as a prism through which to kind of look at our political landscape. Yeah. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Here's the accidental discovery. So I began, <laughs> I began with an idea thinking, okay, we've won a premiership. The publisher will indulge me one book for fun, which is a book about Richmond winning a premiership. It became something else once I started. I'm a data nerd, so and data nerds spot patterns. <laughs> I can see we love that. that. We there, love that. There is a pattern. There is a pattern that's undeniable. But the Tigers of old, the old Graham Richmond-led Richmond that used to terminate a coach every year and a captain every year, that Richmond reminds me today of the way politics is conducted. Yeah. So between 2010 and 2015, we know, and we don't want to bore the listeners with too much repetition, uh, but we've had five prime ministers in that period. You know, Richmond, we're having five coaches. At any, take any point between the mid-70s to the early 90s, at any five or six-year period, you'll probably have about four or five coaches. Names don't matter. It's the way they governed. They thought that you could motivate players and motivate a club through fear. They thought if you didn't get in, an instant return... Uh, you didn't have a good season, somebody was to blame, and you had to lop the head off the person in charge. That is the way politics is conducted today. Weirdly, it wasn't conducted that way in the 80s and 90s. So they've swapped. What, what that, do you that, see as a crossover? Where do you think it sort of shifted? Uh, Can you name names? We, I think I've, I've got a theory, but, you know. Oh, no, let me hear your theory. I'd be interested <laughs> oh, in your theory. Oh, Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott. I in think, opposition. I think Tony Abbott is, is, is sort of the last in the step okay. here, I think. I think he sort of he sort of brings to life a whole lot of things that began in the early 90s. One of the things, one of the things I describe, uh, putting the political hat on, taking the beanie off and taking the <laughs> membership lanyard off and putting the political hat on, you know, the press pass back on. From the early 90s, and you could see this slow-moving train wreck in politics, uh, news poll goes from monthly to fortnightly. And that's, I think that's the first step into the abyss for us. So we're a, like hamsters a on a wheel. Yeah, and and. and I think politics then becomes an extended footy tipping competition. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Now, footy tipping competitions are meant to be fun. Not every two weeks I have to check who's in front and who's behind and the government of the day is behind, so they're going to change this position even though they think it's the right thing because they weighed all the evidence and they should be doing this. But they won't do this because the poll says they shouldn't do it. Um, as I said, it reminds me of the Tigers of old. Mm. Uh, now, one of the reasons I've found this thing amusing to me is it's allowed the political side of my writing to be able to gently nudge the system again with a different way of looking at themselves rather than saying, and I know a lot of politicians tell me and others this, we're sick of being told that Australia used to be run by giants. You know, the giants walk the political landscape, Hawke, Keating, Howard, and every time you mention one of them to the present generation, they start to cry. Well, they don't really cry. They get really angry really quickly. And it's very hard to, yeah, and it's very hard to repeat that story for them. So I'm hoping, you know, having my cake and eating it here as well, <laughs> writing essentially a, a football book but with a political twist at the end, <laughs> be able to nudge the political system into the looking at Richmond past and Richmond present. And bear in mind, this isn't just Richmond's story. A lot of clubs now are better run than the country today. 
There's a broader political discussion, though, because you say on social media, especially on Twitter, that your political commentary perhaps gets, you know, vitriol from here and there, as well as I'm sure a lot of love. But that when you started tweeting about football, all of a sudden everything got warm and fuzzy and beautiful. Yeah, it uh, it got normal again. So the conversations in social media, so for those who don't know, I stupidly, well, it wasn't stupid. I predicted Richmond Premiership in July last year and I figured, you know, I'm not a public figure. I'm not a not a A-lister or even a B-lister. You don't get invited to the Logies and I wouldn't get invited to a Brownlow medal or anything like that. Um, but I put it out there because I had a sneaking suspicion it was our year and I expected a pile-on. Because I'd been so desensitised to the conduct in social media. So even if you link a standard article that you didn't write, half the response in your Twitter feed, if it's a political article linking is, the headline is crap, you're crap, this is crap, mm. that's crap, you're this, you're that, why haven't you written about this? Hang on, I'm just sharing an article. Mm. Leave me alone. <laughs> but the footy one didn't become, you idiot, what are you talking about? There are all these people from all these clubs and friends and contacts and colleagues all hopping in, having fun conversations about the thing that makes us human again. So I didn't have Collingwood supporters coming in there going, ah, you suck. I didn't have sort of Hawthorne supporters going in, oh, we're going to win again or whatever. (laughs) Sorry. We don't need to tell people. (laughs) (laughs) The exchanges were fun. Not only were the exchanges fun, uh, by the time you get to late August and early September, you know, we've got top four and then – got the home final against the team that should be hosting the home final, Geelong, uh, people were calling out to me on the street, random strangers. Go Tigers. Go Tigers with wow. big smiles on their faces. Mm. I know having read uh, Martin Flanagan's book that, that there was a, a similar experience dogs, yeah. for the dogs in 2016. So, again, take the beanie off and take the membership pass off. Put the press pass back on. Something else, that's telling you something else, isn't it? Yeah. We're projecting onto sport and especially Aussie rules, we're projecting something onto it that uh, other institutions can't fulfil at the moment. Can I suggest something, though? I think it's – you talk about it crossing ethnicity and class and religion. I would say it doesn't cross gender, and I think football continues to be political just by being female and talking about it in a way that it it isn't for a man, perhaps. Is is that something that you encountered at all? Would you even be able – I mean – I wonder. I think I could... I think it's got better, but I do think just by virtue of being female talking about football, we get some of that stuff you say you don't get. Well, you would absolutely... I I can understand this. You would absolutely get it because um, for the same reason that Elise Sales and Annabelle Crabbe's Twitter feeds are toxic, more toxic than mine. So being a guy and being, you know, from an established migrant community and Australian-born, I wouldn't, if I was sort of Lebanese or Sudanese, I think yep. I'd attract a bit more vitriol. But being a guy, yes, mm. my political feed is less toxic than Annabelle or Lee's political feeds. Uh, and I could imagine I could talk about football and have almost the freedom to breathe, whereas you can and can't, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's mixed, yeah. isn't it? Well, yeah. it's interesting in the book you say about the Richmond win, because we'll get on to the Richmond mm. win. Uh, first, it demonstrated the power of diversity. On Grand Final Day 2017, the six Richmond players who pulled votes in the Norm Smith 
Medal for Best on Ground were the son of a Maori, Dustin Martin, a Muslim Australian, Bashahuli, an Indigenous Australian, Shane Edwards, a, a Jehovah's Witness, Alex Rance, an Italian Australian, Dion Prestia, and a teenager from the northern suburbs of Adelaide, Jack Graham. Has any successful supporting team looked more Australian? And it's it's just a beautiful celebration of the game. It was uh, it was quite a day, wasn't it? Well, tell us your feelings of the day. Felt um, I'd never been to a grand final where my own team was playing. I'd been to two grand finals as an adult, uh, and the first one was two thousand and one. And I spent the entire day on the phone. Uh, reporting back to my dad that the Lions were going to win a premiership, even though they were Brisbane Lions, not the Fitzroy Lions. And I saw the Port Brisbane won in 2004, and they were just another footy game to me. But when your own team is playing in a grand final and you're going, uh, it's uh, it was a magical experience. And as much as you try and preempt it before you're first, you keep thinking it'll be this, it'll be that, it always becomes something else, and there is so much going on in the household. You know, you're putting your kid on. I don't wear colours normally, but I was definitely going to wear colours on that day. <laughs> uh, we had five. We had five in the in in. Uh, we our, our lineup was unchanged for the three finals as per the team. So, wow. <laughs> Mum, my brother-in-law, his daughter, my niece, my daughter, and myself, and we're all kitted up. Taking a photo of us at the railway station, all with our gear on. It um, we felt like we all, especially the adults in that in that collection, we all felt like kids again. And the game itself, we were seated. We got we were lucky enough in the draw. We got seats at the punt road end on the sort of lower level, on the bottom level, but right up the back. And it felt very old school in there, like it felt like the seventies in there. That was sort of the sort of the undeveloped part of the. Um, of the uh, of the stand of, of the what is it now? The still the southern stand, isn't it? The stand yeah, down there. Yeah, it's still end. called that. Still oh, we called. know what you mean. We, that's what <laughs> yeah. we call it. Yeah, and uh, the cheer squad is a, is a couple of blocks away from us. But of course, when the first couple of Adelaide goals were scored, the noise that came from the other end was almost an equal and opposite force. I thought, hmm, Ooh. they look like a good team. <laughs> but then, very quickly, they changed, didn't it? Oh, just we've monstered them, mm. and. Uh, I, uh, a guy at the Richmond Club uh, asked me when I was doing the interviews for the book. He says, "I've been asking everyone when do you thought when did you think the game was won?" I th- actually thought early in the third quarter, uh, where Graham kicked a set shot from a pocket where both Rewalt and Walker had missed. I thought, "No, we're on today." That's it. These these are the sort of things yeah. that happen when your team is going to win. I didn't relax, <laughs> but the sort of you know psychological side of a supporter brain said. We're on today, and look at them; they they look lost. Uh, I would have hate to have been an Adelaide supporter that day, but I wonder what yeah. would have happened if if my team had lost. I think we would have got takeaway that night and put it away. Mm. And mm. I think we would have we would have got on with our lives. Whereas what happens with a premiership, and I've discussed this with a number of mates, uh, you then take the summer one replay at a time, don't you? Isn't that what Absolutely. happens to you? Isn't that over what happens to you? And over, over. again. But you have to stop cold when the yep. new season starts. You don't look. No. You put that Come DVD, back. put Come. those DVDs away. Absolutely. And Richmond was absolutely on fire in the best possible way, the suburb of Richmond. And that yes. was very different from premierships old where um, perhaps Richmond, 
the suburb didn't celebrate. As yeah, hard. I'm not sure the suburb celebrated at all in the past. And I've asked people about this, and I've checked the and I've checked the record. Um, everyone went home and watched the replay. Yeah, right. Because well, you had to rush home to get there to yeah. watch it. You yeah. didn't want to miss it. Yeah, people didn't didn't hang around. I've asked the players about this, and the, some former players and says they all went off to their celebration dinner, but they didn't come back to mob scenes at Swan mm. Street or whatever. Mm. But see, this is the um, so the unexpected bits in the book. I'm not trying to flog the book here, but in the, in the writing of this, is looking for an echo of 2007. And in the only other time I can find that sort of street party, that sort of very visceral, uh, you know, my identity being celebrated in a, in a public space is the 20s and 30s. Really? Not 91, the col- uh, 90, the Collingwood? No, well, the Collingwood, yes, yeah. and I'm thinking from Richmond's perspective. Yeah, right. Oh, okay, okay yeah, but sure. there, was an, there was an energy around every club premiership in the 20s yeah. and 30s. So I had a look at some others. I had a look at Geelong's in 25. I had a look at the South Melbourne one in uh, 33, and I had a look at the Richmond one in 34. The Richmond ones in 20 and 21 are hysterical. The one in 9 and 20, can we talk about the, the one in 9 and 20 is, is beyond hysterical because it's their first ever VFL premiership. And... Uh, they all hop into these um, into these sort of carriages, cabs, or whatever they would have been at the time. They go out to St Kilda for a celebration dinner. They do laps of Burke Street, as you do, <laughs> as you do, to uh, to to a cheering mob. They finally get back to Richmond later that evening, and outside the town hall, there are thousands gathered at the town hall waiting to receive their heroes. And the ruckman, a guy called Barney Herbert. Climbs up on the statue of the of one of the mayors, uh, an old mayor who was also the first Richmond Club president, carrying a crayfish in each hand. Climbs up the top. <laughs> Just happened to have them handy. The catch cry in those days was, what do we do? Eat them alive. So he held the two crayfish ah. up to the audience and he said, what do we do with them? And they all yelled back, eat them alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Pretty it's pretty amazing. tragic, isn't it? But um, by the 30s, by the way, by the 30s, they're interrupting uh, uh, motion picture houses. They're bringing the players into the front of wow. the stage of each of these. So that, look, 30% employment by the time you get to mm. the early 30s. The suburbs of Richmond, Collingwood, South Melbourne, uh, Fitzroy, hardest hit in the Depression, mm. hardest hit. Uh, and I did this, only an economist would be dumb enough to try this. Uh, I did a c- correlation between unemployment rates and on-field success. And the most successful clubs in the 30s uh, came from the poorest neighbourhoods. Isn't that amazing? And so, but yeah, but I don't think 2017 was about that so much. Right. But that's, that's, they're, they're the equivalent street parties. Every club had one of them. Yeah. But Collingwood's clearly in 1990 when I read up. It was crazy. I was there. It was crazy. And I'm not a Collingwood fan. I was there. But you would have gone anyway. Well, I I went to all the grand finals for about nine years in a row because Hawthorne was in most of them. That was the first (laughs) one we went. So I didn't see it as a real one. Anyway, um, I want you to look forward for a a little bit for us. Um, You talked about the tribalism in um, politics as being much more toxic than it is, you know, perhaps than it, you know, different to it is, to how it is in sport today. Yeah. So I want you to do two things for me. I want you to tell tell us, one, who you think is going to win the premiership this year okay. and two, what is our way forward in to break down this toxic yeah. relationship in politics? So um, what politicians do is that they take the second question first, but I will take the first <laughs> question first. It's the easy one. <laughs> uh, I think Richmond will go back to back and... In my supporter brain, there are two analogies. Is it 74 or 81? So coming off the 73 premiership, for most of that 74 season, we were top of the ladder and the 
team felt like they were going to win. And some of the ex-players have told me that that was the year that they felt most dominant. Uh, I don't think we're that much better than everybody else this season. I still think the competition, for whatever reason, is in transition whilst it's looking for its next super team, you know, post-Hawthorne. Mm. And it doesn't have a super team yet. But we're probably the, we're probably the, you know, barring injuries. You're doing okay. Most likely contender, yeah. Yeah. So it feels more like 74 than 81. 81 was, the, was sort of the year I almost checked out as a supporter because... We were defending the premiership. We were still the best team in the league and mm. couldn't even make the five. Mm. Yeah, um, heartbreaking. Yes. So the second question, uh, there is a leadership model and it's an intuitive model because Richmond had to unlearn a lot of bad habits. So Brendan Gale told me that it took him, it took him years in the sort of rebuild because remember he turns up with Hardwick. He turned up a few months before Hardwick, but he was sort of there for the last interview. And in 2010, they're the worst playing list since Fitzroy, since Fitzroy was thrown out of the competition. And no one expected them to win a game that year. But they, they won six, they won eight the next year, and then after uh, in the fourth season, they've made the finals. Now, by the time they've reached the finals in the fourth season, some of that old Richmond murmur was coming in. You know, your chokers, sack the coach, Cochin is weak, you know, Jack will never, will never win your premiership, what's Rance doing, Delidio, all this sort of stuff. So... The, the supporter base and the sort of club culture was still eat your own, not was eat it, them alive. Did they have the, the attempted coup then too? Was that then or was that the year before? Uh, no, the attempted coup was 2016. Oh, right, okay. there are, I think yeah. theoretically, Caroline Wilson says that theoretically, I think there were as many as three attempted coups. There was one right. really formal one which yeah. had some ex-players mm-hmm. in it, uh, premiership captain and so Bruce Monteith and Brian Wood were attached to that one. But Brendan would say that it took him years to figure out that the hardest part was to almost re-educate Richmond itself, the club and the supporters, about long-term thinking. And in the national competition, the clubs that have done well are the clubs that, you know, are not so much stable but do roll with the punches better and have an eye, have an eye on the longer-term horizon. And, in fact, the really successful clubs at the moment, uh, you know, might expect to win a premiership every year, but it's not the end of the world if they don't. And they do measure progress through a season where a premiership hasn't been won. But how Richmond sort of learnt to govern begins with Peggy O'Neill. Yeah. She's amazing. So I, I, you know, if this was was the political stump speech, I'd say you put a woman in charge. (laughs) And then you do the thing that can't be done in politics today is that you let people do their jobs. So... One of the things she taught them, and she had to teach them this, because ex-players can't teach you this. Not even Brendan could teach them this, and that's no disrespect to Brendan. What she taught them was that the board sets strategy, and you don't have board members sitting in the coach's box. You know, why'd you play so-and-so? My kid wants this. Can you get a football for somebody else? Can I get a selfie with so-and-so? I've got this event here. That Could sounds you bring like hell. Mm. But that's how, fo- that's how football clubs used to be run in the semi-professional days, and Richmond hung on to that probably longer than most. Carlton obviously hung on to it longer than most. Uh, Carlton are the last one that is sort of stepping up to the national competition. So woman in charge with a board that sets strategy. Football department that answers to the board but is allowed to do its job and coach and players left alone during the season. Now, the political, the political analogy is um, don't invest all the authority in the Prime Minister's office. Don't have your ministers contacting your Prime Minister's office each day to work out what the 10 speaking points are. Govern, for God's sake, govern. Bob Hawke used to let his ministers govern, A, and B, 
his ministers didn't feel obliged to comment across things outside their portfolio to sort of flood the field on Sky or the drama or whatever. Um, it's, um, they're obviously not paying attention to how football lifted itself up for the 21st century, but they should have a good look at it because it's almost an inoffensive way to help them see what they're doing wrong because mm. you're no longer saying to them, you're not Hawke, you're not Keating, you're not Howard. Instead, you're saying to them, you should be Peggy O'Neill. Nice. That's a great way to end. I mean, <laughs> this book has a cast of characters and a suburb that has a big heart. We have been speaking to George Megalogenis. It's The Football Solution. Thanks so much for coming in, George. Thank you very Thanks, much. George. This was always on the top of my list for the book tour. I always wanted to do this podcast. <laughs> yay! Oh, Love yay. your work. Thanks, Thanks George. George. Okay, ladies, have we got some final business? I know I'm race by name, race by nature today, but I have a date. Uh, Tell us about it. Look, if I had to name my favourite player of all time. We know, we know. It would be Sam Mitchell and I'm about to do conversation hour with him. So I I fear for him being locked in a small studio with me for an hour. We all do. The conversation hour is... Makes me think I'm going to have him for an hour, but it's only half an hour with him, Is and it? I feel then he slightly disappointed. Can we play I had it next week yeah. for those listeners who don't get to hear some yeah, of it. Yeah, look, I'm sure I'll be able to grab a bit, and um, it is an absolute dream for me to be able to do this. By the way, and in no small way is that because of the outer sanctum and because of the support that you guys in here have given me and because of the people who listen to this. So thank you so much. <laughs> oh my Dreams God. can come Please true. Please cheer for me on the sidelines. But before uh, we wrap up of here, out of here and I do a nervous toilet stop, um, <laughs> Billie Jean King, that podcast, Kate, yes. what was it? So um, we've mentioned her a couple of times this, this show and I just want to uh, encourage listeners to go and, and track down this podcast and listen to it. The BBC does a very famous podcast Podcast called Desert Island Discs. The the format is essentially that um, the interviewer, who is these days Kirsty Young, sits down often with all kinds of people from all walks of life, and she is a brilliant interviewer. And she sort of explores that person's life story. And in between, she asks them to share eight of their favourite pieces of music. And then at the end, she says to them, and if you could pick only one to take to a desert island, which piece of music would it be and which book would you take? And so she interviewed Billie Jean King on a recent episode, and it's just jam-packed with extraordinary pieces of information uh, about the history of women's sport and the kind of journey that Billie Jean King has gone on is extraordinary because she is now a proudly um, gay woman, but she was she was um, married originally and she kept her sexuality secret for a long time and so she has just a, a plethora of incredible stories to tell about her her life um, there's a line where she says that when you read history it goes really fast but when you live it it goes really slow and I just really encourage people to listen to it because mm, it's, it's fantastic. absolutely mm. fantastic and fascinating mm. um, the The other thing I just wanted to um, give a shout out to very quickly is that if you're in the regional Victoria, um, if you're in regional Victoria, particularly in Ballarat, this Sunday there's going to be um, an important match held at the City Oval. Um, And it's an event to celebrate 100 years of women's footy in Victoria. It kicks off with a series of games starting from 9.30am. So if you're in the area, get along. Um, But the reason they're holding this match is because, as I said, it's the 100-year anniversary of women's footy in Victoria. Um, Because in 1918... 
Uh, women from the Lucas Clothing Factory in Ballarat invited a team of women from a South Melbourne clothing factory who called themselves the Car Key Girls <laughs> to play a game of footy there. And the idea was to raise money. It was um, just not long after the end of World War One. Raise money for the Ballarat Avenue of Honour. And so they played this game. There were marching bands and all kinds of people. I think they raised £330 in this historic event. And so they're celebrating it this Sunday. Get along if you can. Amazing. Lovely. There's also another thing that's been celebrated this weekend, Nicole. Yeah. Well, so this week, four years ago, uh, Jason Twazem Shane launched the Purple Bombers um, with the Essendon Football Club, an LGBTI supporter group. Their patron is Brendan Goddard, who's been an incredible stalwart and supporter right from the beginning, with the aim of making a stand against homophobia. Uh, they were the second supporter group or pride supporter group um, after the Pink Magpies. But since then, we've seen most clubs develop their own Pride supporter groups. We've had three Pride Cups three years in a row, and it's turning you know, and that's turning out to be one of the biggest events on the AFL calendar. So, just a shout out to Jason and the Bombers working so hard to help create a safe space for the LGBTIQ community and really for everyone. There's something else happening this weekend, which is at the um, Bill Laurie Oval in Northcote on Sunday, if you're in Melbourne. The, it's going to be the Birds of Prey clash in the VFL. That is the Darabin Falcons taking on the Hawthorne Hawks. And at half time, <laughs> some of us will be doing a little melee. So uh, you can come along and stand in the outer. With the outer, they have a very decent barbecue there. I'm not sure about their vegan and veggie options, but I'm pretty sure they're okay because it's their pretty woke footy club. It's Northgate. It's Northgate. Yeah, I know. What was, mm. I, what was I thinking? If there's um, no kale, I'm going home. There will, I'll, I bring my own kale. <laughs> I love kale. So um, you can get along and watch the footy with us and cheer on the birds of prey. Your choice. Choose his choice. <laughs> Oh, my heart. We didn't have the girls didn't tell us who wins out of a falcon and a hawk. That's right. Oh, so I'll find back out. And ask them? I will. They're, I very, say, they're well matched. By very the way, after last week's show, I did a Twitter poll, seagulls oh, yes. versus pe- uh, pigeons, and uh, seagulls won. Yep. Same they're on Facebook. Beach. Yep. Beach, 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 beach. Well, it's official then. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us today. We will speak to you again next week. There's only one thing left to say. Go, Go footy! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.